Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. It's July of 2023, and you're tuned into Questions for Corbett, that regular series where you ask the questions and I provide the answers. And this week, we're going to take our cue from a, a question that came up in the course of last week's Exploration in Solutions Watch. Specifically, you'll remember last week, I was talking about how and when and why to cite your sources on Solutions Watch. And as part of that exploration, I was looking at an interesting Reddit post. Specifically, the Rothschilds took over the British economy and planet Earth in 1815 after the Battle of Waterloo when they used their advanced courier system to get early intel and buy up the entire London Stock Exchange for pennies. In 1913, they took over the USA by creating the Fed. Now we are inflation slaves. And you'll recall that I interrogated the sourcing of that claim that was provided in this Reddit post, specifically the screenshot, of course, <laughs> of a CIA document that claims to back this up somehow? Hmm, interesting. The Central Intelligence Agency agent, E. Mullins? No, of course, I did break that down, interrogate it, show why that specific citation to the CIA, as if the CIA was the source of this information, is wildly inaccurate and um, ridiculously irresponsible misinformation at best and actively knowing disinformation at worst. But anyway, having said that, you will recall that from last week's Solutions Watch, and if not, I hope you will go and familiarize yourself with that edition of Solutions Watch. I think it's a particularly important one. But you'll also recall that I did put in the little aside there. You know, if anyone's interested in actually digging into this claim and the sourcing behind it, it's a fascinating story. So if you ask me about it, perhaps I'll cover it in future questions for Corbett. Well, I put out the call and you answered it. I got several different emails from people asking for more information on this. So let's take a representative example from Tamara, who says, Okay, James, I'll bite. Did the Rothschilds create the unconstitutional Federal Reserve private money printing institution for the elite slash bankers to buy up all the assets and steal all the club's money via inflation? <laughs> all right. Thank you for that question, uh, Tamara. It's a good question. And I mean, really, literally, it's a good question. I see that you copy-pasted, essentially, this text from the Reddit post directly, which is a good tactic, because the more specific people are with their questions, the more more satisfying the answer will be, I say. So, yeah, let's, let's interrogate this claim quite specifically. So you'll remember that the claim from the initial Reddit post was summarized in the source image for this Reddit post as the Rothschilds created the unconstitutional Federal Reserve private money printing institution for the elites slash bankers to buy up all the assets and steal all the plebs money via inflation. All right, so there's a, sort of a general claim about what the purpose of the Federal Reserve is on a, on a grand meta-narrative level, which is open to many layers of interpretation and meaning and ambiguity, so I don't know if it's it would be particularly useful to look at, to interrogate the source of that particular side of the claim. But there is another part of this claim that at least supposedly is answered by the giant blue arrow source that is given here in this Reddit image, which is uh, that the Rothschild specifically created the Federal Reserve, which is an interesting claim. And again, this sources to not the CIA, but to the secrets of the Federal Reserve, the London Connection, by Eustace Mullins, who, again, I'm going to assume most of my audience will be familiar with at least, at least by name. Um, I'm sure there are some in the crowd who have actually read Secrets of the Federal Reserve. And here in this Reddit post is a specific reference to a specific part of the book that supposedly basically backs this up. So there you go. 
Um, it's not the CIA, it's Eustace Mullins. And of course, you can find and borrow the book for free on archive.org. There are PDF versions you don't even have to log in to be able to borrow or read. There's PDF versions all over the internet. You can find it in a million different locations, but I'll just take this handy-dandy archive.org version that you can literally flip through the pages and read it page by page if you are so inclined. So the link will be in the show notes if you are inclined to do that. But specifically, let's go about searching this particular claim. And why not use this as a little refresher for people who've forgotten my solutions watch on how to research, um, where I've shown specifically how I go about researching things. Let's let's see. Okay, so here we have a quotation that's ostensibly from this Secrets of the Federal, Federal Reserve, the London Connection by Eustace Mullins. So we have the book uh, with the exact text. And so now we're looking for this particular passage, and there's no page number or chapter citation or anything like that, so we're just going to have to wing it. But, well, here highlighted in red so that we know that this is what this is about, are the words Rothschild representatives. So what we're going to do is we're going to use the handy-dandy search feature that uh, you have here on the sidebar of the archive.org version, and we're going to attempt to type around my microphone, which is always difficult, Rothschild representatives, and we're going to use the, the Boolean operator, known as the quotation mark, uh, so that we get this exact phrase, those exact words, wherever they come up within the book, will be found here. And hopefully that will be unique enough that it'll be able to find it. And lo and behold, there you go, page 94. And if we turn to page 94, it'll take a second for archive.org to load on my lagging internet connection. And there you go. Okay, so let's zoom in on this and... Let's look at this text, and we'll get rid of that for now, because we don't need it, and we'll zoom in so it's nice and legible for everyone here. Okay, so this is talking about chart one, and here it does say chart one reveals the linear connection between the Rothschilds, da 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 da, da. chart one reveals the linear connection between the Rothschilds and the Bank of England. Okay, so here is the text, and this is the, that text that's being quoted from the Reddit post. So let's read through it. Chart 1 reveals a linear connection between the Rothschilds and the Bank of England and the London banking houses, which ultimately control the Federal Reserve Banks through their stock holdings of bank stock and their subsidiary firms in New York. The two principal Rothschild representatives, there's those words, in New York, J.P. Morgan Co. and Kuhn Loban Co., were the firms which set up the Jekyll Island Conference at which the Federal Reserve Act was drafted, who directed the subsequent successful campaign to have the plan enacted into law by Congress, and who purchased the controlling amounts of stock in the Federal Reserve Bank of New York in 1914. These firms had their principal officers appointed to the Federal Reserve Board of Governors and the Federal Advisory Council in 1914. Okay, a, a couple of things to note about that. First, chart one is referring to chart one, and if you go, you can actually take a look at this chart, which purports to be the Federal Reserve Bank of New York um, shares that are in the bank, and who who is holding them, and how many shares. And this is research that I believe was original to Eustace Mullins, um, who was digging this up originally in the 1960s. So, first of all, I just want to say hats off to the OG original researchers who literally had to go and dig through records and go to actual institutions and not just libraries, but actually go to the Library of Congress and other places and literally do the, the boots on the ground detective work of digging up pieces of paper to document all this kind of stuff. It was orders of magnitude more difficult to do this back in the 1960s, say, than it is today when you can do it sitting on your plump posterior in the comfort of your own home. So anyway, it was a lot of work to assemble this type of information back in the day and was not 
readily known. So there you go. For example, National Bank, uh, how many shares it has, or First National Bank of New York and how many shares it has, Hanover International Bank, etc. And it goes through and talks about those shares and um, some of the people that are holding them. All right. Interesting. But what does this really mean? First of all, I think it is important to note from this paragraph, when we read through the paragraph in its context, not just the words Rothschild representatives, but in its whole context, you start to get the understanding that there's sort of more going on here than simply the Rothschilds created the Federal Reserve. That, of course, is the, the, the TikTok summary that strips all of the information out of this information, as it were. So, of course, yeah, we're talking about a process that reveals a linear connection between Rothschilds and the Bank of England and London banking houses and their control over New York banking houses that had shares in what became the Federal Reserve that was set up by a number of representatives in a secret meeting and then they appointed people to certain boards. You're already starting to see there's quite a bit more detail to this than simply the Rothschilds created the Federal Reserve. But we can go deeper. So why don't we go deeper? Um, now, so, okay. So how do we know, for example, that Morgan Co., uh, J.P. Morgan Co. was a Rothschild representative in the United States? Well, we can take it from The Secrets of the Federal Reserve by Eustace Mullins. So let's look up Junius, who is, of course, J.P. Morgan's father. John Pierpont Morgan's father was Junius S. Morgan. And if we go back to page 50 in Secrets of the Federal Reserve, we can find out more about Junius and his connection with the House of Rothschild. So, um, in fact, we'll back up a little bit in order to find out more about uh, George Peabody, which, as uh, he goes on to say, to understand why these firms operate as they do, it is necessary to give a brief history of their origins. Few Americans know that J.P. Morgan Company began as George Peabody and Company. And Peabody was born at South Danvers, Massachusetts, began business in Georgetown, D.C. in 1814. Da, 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 da. He was a banker. Da, 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 da. Uh, he had excellent entree in London business uh, through another Baltimore firm established in Liverpool, the Brown Brothers. Brown Brothers? Brown Brothers Harriman? You're starting to see some of these names. Oh, yeah, Brown Brothers Harriman of New York. That should be ringing bells for conspiracy researchers in the crowd anyway. Da, 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 da. But now it talks about George Peabody, which you'll recall was the the firm, the original banking house that gave birth to Junius Morgan that gave birth to J.P. Morgan, literally. Um, Soon after he arrived in London, George Peabody was surprised to be summoned to an audience with the gruff Baron Nathan Mayer Rothschild. Without mincing words, Rothschild revealed to Peabody that much of the London aristocracy openly disliked Rothschild and refused his invitations. He noticed that uh, he proposed, sorry, that Peabody, a man of modest means, be established as a lavish host whose entertainments would soon be the talk of London. Rothschild would, of course, pay all the bills. Peabody accepted the offer and soon became known as the most popular host in London. His annual 4th of July dinner, celebrating American independence, became extremely popular with the English aristocracy, many of whom, while drinking Peabody's wine, regaled each other with jokes about Rothschild's crudities and bad manners without realizing that every drop they drank had been paid for by Rothschild. 
And then it goes on to say, it's hardly surprising that the most popular host in London would also become a successful businessman, particularly with the House of Rothschild supporting him behind the scenes. Peabody often operated with a capital of 500,000 pounds, da da da. His American agent was the Boston firm of Beeb, Morgan and Company, headed by Junius S. Morgan, father of John Pierpont Morgan. Peabody, who never married, had no one to succeed him, and he was very favorably impressed by the tall, handsome Junius Morgan, blah, 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 persuaded Morgan to join him, da 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 da. Junius uh, takes over, blah, blah, blah. John Pierpont takes over from Papa, da da da. All right, so there you go. So there's the line of succession. And uh, it is important to know that, uh, where is that exact phrase? Uh, I, I know, oh, yes, yes, this is, okay, okay. George Peabody found that he had chosen well in selecting Junius S. Morgan as his successor. Morgan agreed to continue the Sub Rosa relationship with N.M. Rothschild Company and soon expanded the firm's activities by shipping large quantities of railroad iron to the United States. It was Peabody Iron, which... Okay, so essentially, here is the basis of the core of the proof of the argument that Morgan was a Rothschild agent. Um, And in fact, the more you research this online, you'll find everyone pointing back ultimately to Eustace Mullins, because he's the one who asserts this in The Secrets of the Federal Reserve, which you will note is a book that does actually have references. There are references and to, to some very certain mainstream, very mainstream sources and things that can be looked up and that were published by reputable publishers and what have you back in the day. So definitely things that you can track down and verify. But you will also notice that when it comes to this secret arrangement that allegedly began with uh, Peabody in London, uh, soon after he arrived in London, George Peabody, blah, 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 you'll notice there is no reference for this story. This is a story that is being written by Eustace Mullins in the 1960s about something that allegedly happened uh, to George Peabody over half a century before these words were written in a secret agreement that apparently only Eustace Mullins knows about, or if he knows it, if he knows some reason why he is privy to the details of this secret agreement, he does not share it with the reader. And then he goes on to extend that to... Junius Morgan, Peabody's successor, who continued the Subrosa relationship. So now we know that the secret agreement that took place between Peabody and Rothschild that only Eustace Mullins knows about and that isn't sourced anywhere, it was continued by Junius Morgan, uh, Junius Morgan after Peabody uh, uh, passed on the succession to Morgan. And how do we know that? Once again, no source. It's Eustace, trust me bro, Mullins saying... I just know. I just know about the secret agreement that took place behind closed doors that there were no records of, that I can't cite anything, there are no sources, but I'm writing these words in this book. So, trust me, bro. He doesn't even say how he knows it. It's just there. It's just written as if it exists. Of course, there was the secret agreement. So this is the kernel of the basis. Now, I don't want to do injustice to the complexity of this topic because there is no doubt that absolutely there were a number of different working relationships between Morgan and the various banks and firms that he was involved with and the various agents that he had and agents of the Rothschild banking house in Europe and the various things that they were involved in and they had certain things that they they were both involved in together, etc., etc. So there were definitely working relationships. But to say that there was some sort of working relationship and there were certain people that were connected to each other 
between the largest banking house in America and the largest banking house in Europe is not exactly rocket science. Of course there were relationships there, but what was the nature of that relationship? And who was subordinated to who and in what way? And what were the terms and of whatever arrangement there was? Again, Eustace Mullins has absolutely nothing to say about that. He simply asserts there was a secret agreement that made Morgan some sort of mind-controlled agent of the Rothschilds, and therefore anything that Morgan or Morgan's representatives did was actually a Rothschild thing. <laughs> Which, okay, Eustace, trust me bro, Mullins. Now, as I say, again, there is some genuine research in this book. I would not absolutely, I'm not saying throw this entire baby out with the bathwater, but I am saying that on this point in particular, there is no evidence presented, zero, no evidence presented for why anyone should believe this story about the secret agreement that made Morgan a, a mind-controlled agent of the Rothschilds. That's not even to say, for the heart of thinking, that's not to say it's not true. It very well could be true. But I and you, unless you know of some secret document that I don't know of, uh, have zero reason for believing it other than Eustace Mullins wrote those words on a piece of paper. Uh, that's not good enough for me. I need to know how Eustace Mullins supposedly knew about this secret agreement. No, no meeting minutes. It was behind closed doors. It was between two men who were talking years before Eustace Mullins was even born, but he knew what they were talking about and exactly what was said and the terms of that relationship and how it carried on in succession, etc. Again, the reason that we don't just trust anyone for, well, I, I say there was a secret agreement, so just believe me, um, should be evident to my listeners. But also because, um, again, not to disparage Mullins, he was doing, I think, probably the best that he could with the information that he had and the access that he had, but he got things, he got some things demonstrably, provably 100% wrong, including uh, he went on to cite the JFK Fed myth. Um, not in this Secrets of the Federal Reserve book, uh, in particular, but in lectures that he has given in subsequent years, he did go on to cite the JFK Fed myth, which if you don't know about, I hope you will uh, um, take a look at episode 389 of the Corporate Report, debunking the JFK silver certificate myth, which goes to show that what is often floated in conspiracy circles, including Jim Mars, including Eustace Mullins, that JFK was issuing silver certificates and greenbacks against the Fed, and that's why they killed him, is 100%, not not just slightly, absolutely, totally opposite to reality. JFK was giving more power to the Fed to actually stop the silver certificate issuances, which were mandated and which were automatic. JFK had nothing to do with that. He was giving power to the Fed so that they could then stop that, which is exactly what they did. Anyway, so that's just one example of something that we know demonstrably, documentably, on the record, Eustace Mullins was flat out, completely, totally, 100% wrong about. So we're not going to simply trust, right, that he he knows about some secret agreement in some way that we can't possibly document. So let's, okay, so have we, have we really drilled down on this? Okay, well, anyway, so this sort of Mickey Mouse TikTok summary, the two-second summary for the, the fluoride-addled uh, normies in the crowd, the Rothschilds created the Fed, there may be more to say to it than that. But, but what? What does this mean? How does it work? So in order to understand that, we have to actually understand something about the Federal Reserve and the way it operates and the people who were involved in the creation of it, etc. So yes, the Federal Reserve Act was passed in 1913, but to complicate things even more, the Federal Reserve Act that was passed in 1913 
was not the Jekyll Island plan. What? Yes. Well, as as I certainly did talk about in in the Century of Enslavement documentary and subsequent work that I've done, the the, the actual Jekyll Island plan was floated by Senator Nelson Aldrich um, after returning from Jekyll Island, but at the time, in the midst of the panic or the the aftermath of the Panic of 1907 and the we need a central bank crisis that ensued. Uh, people were looking at Senator Aldrich, who was known as the man, the uh, banking man on, in in the Senate. He was in the co- in the in the pocket of the banksters. Everyone knew it at the time, so everyone knew when Senator Aldrich comes arrives with this plan to create a central bank that's oh by the way completely private and owned by the bankers. Everyone knew what that was, and no one fell for it, and it was roundly defeated. So the Federal Reserve Act that was ultimately passed was actually a separate plan, one that was at least forwarded in Congress by uh, Carter Glass of Glass-Steagall fame, or infamy, and Senator Robert Latham Owen. And it was meant as a compromise plan between the Jekyll Island plan of a completely private banking cartel and the William Jennings Bryan kind of idea of a governmental-controlled central bank. So here's here's a compromise, and that's where we get this decentralized central bank that the Fed likes to to talk about. Uh, and uh, don't worry, guys. It's it's yes, it's see this is created by Congress, and it's and and the Federal Open Market Committee is appointed by the president. See, it's it's a government entity, but actually for legal purposes, it's actually a a conglomeration of regional banks that are private entities. <laughs> what? What's going on? Oh, it's too much work to figure this out. Okay, whatever. <laughs> Let's never talk about it again, which is essentially what the American public agreed to do. So, yes, there's a lot more to go into this. But one of the things that this raises is the fact that what what I have just gestured to, and I hope some of the people in the crowd have picked up on, is that, yes, at Jekyll Island, you had, of course, the Morgan interest at the table. You had Kuhn Loeb at the table. You also had Aldrich at the table, obviously tied in with the Rockefeller family, which at that time was making its way into the banking community from its oil wealth into banking wealth. Again, as I've talked about in, for example, How Big Oil Conquered the World. But uh, what... The name Glass, oh yeah, Glass, Glass Steagall, oh wait, what was that about? Well, again, I hope that you remember, and if not, I really suggest you take another look at episode 317 of the Corporate Report podcast on the truth about Glass Steagall, where I talked about the fact that Glass Steagall itself was part of a, a essentially a internecine banking war that was taking place between the banking, the rival banking clans of the Morgans and the Rockefellers. And that Glass-Steagall, which was propounded and promoted by Nelson Aldrich, a.k.a. John D. Rockefeller Jr.'s father-in-law, was kind of a dagger aimed at the heart of the Morgan Empire. And people who want to know more about that, please do follow this link from the uh, episode 317 show notes, Separation of Commercial and Investment Banking, the Morgans versus the Rockefellers, which lays it out and talks about that. So it's important to understand, even on Jekyll Island, yes, the bankers were, the banksters were coming together uh, at the table to talk these things over, but it doesn't mean they were one one entity that all 
that they're all the same and they're all controlled by one family so they are they, there's no difference between them there's no there's no rivalry that goes on between them there's no backstabbing they're just one entity they're the banksters and they all work together well not necessarily yes of course they came together to form the federal reserve when it suited their interests to do so but they still were squabbling and fighting with each other stabbing each other in the back at every opportunity in order to try to uh, earn a leg up and uh, i think there's a lot more to be said about that type type of rivalry and faction that goes on um so it's not a monolithic conspiracy that's controlled by one family at the top also okay so now let's get into the the question of the federal reserve because i think this probably is what is truly at the at the core of this this is the question that it often comes down to who owns the federal reserve yeah 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 detail schmetails but james the rothschilds own the federal reserve well what does that again what does that mean exactly we saw a gesture towards that in the secrets of the federal reserve in that chart that we were looking at look breaking down shares of ownership in the federal reserve bank of new york the federal reserve bank of new york which specifically is one of the 12 member banks of the federal reserve system there was 12 regional banks the new new york fed being one of them undoubtedly uncontestably undeniably the most important by far and whoever controls the new york fed absolutely controls the fed but anyway it is important to note that this is one regional bank okay so what does that mean to have there are shareholders in the federal reserve bank of new york what does that mean does that okay so these are the owners right well in a sense but what does that mean okay so yes there are owners of the federal reserve regional banks which oh by the way are private banks and if you need confirmation of that it is in my century of enslavement documentary there you have the lawyer representing the uh, federal reserve system literally arguing in court yes the regional banks are private banks and thus we're not uh, we're not privy to your access to information um lawsuits uh so yes they are private banks and who owns them well the shareholders right but who are the shareholders so yes there are shareholders in the fed namely the member banks that make up the federal reserve system every nationally accredited bank that is part of the federal reserve system is actually required to purchase shares in the federal reserve and those are the only shares that are offered there are no public publicly available shares of the fed that are available it is only for members member banks and you can get more information about this from various sources for example even the uh like for example the federal reserve bank of richmond which is one of the regional banks you can find this on the minneapolis page and and others um but they they talk about what membership actually entails and let's see if we can blow this up a little bit so it's a little bit easier to read and uh for example they say that each state member bank must hold capital stock in the richmond fed fill in your regional bank of choice they're all the same in an amount equal to six percent of its combined capital and surplus excluding retained earnings with three percent paid in and the remaining three percent on call the paid in portion from our community banks currently earns an annual dividend rate of six percent so they take six percent of combined capital and surplus of the bank at the point at which they're joining and they purchase shares in the federal reserve equal to that amount and so bigger banks obviously get more shares right that's how that works and the shares pay an annual dividend of six percent so this is how the fed gets to come in and say quite truthfully that the fed federal reserve system is not a profit-making institution 
That's not what the banks are. That's not what this is about. This is about protecting the banking, the integrity of the banking system in the United States. So it's not a profit-driven thing. We don't make any profits. Well, okay, there are dividends that are paid on our shares, and those dividends are in the amount of six percent per year. So the Federal Reserve does earn a profit from its activities, but it turns 94% of that profit over to the Treasury. It gives it to the U.S. Treasury. It keeps 6% back for its shareholders. And that is not actually a trivial thing. Um, you can find out more information about that. For example, New Republic had an uh, article about that almost a decade ago. This is the Fed's most brazen and least known handout to private banks, where it talks about this system and the dividends that are paid on the shares. And it does note here, for example, in some ways, the stock is a... Uh, hold on, let me blow this up. In some way... Oh, I can't. I can't blow this up. Oh, there we go. In some ways, the stock is a membership fee to fund the regional reserve bank's activities. Only in this case, the stock pays a 6% dividend every year that the Federal Reserve makes money as per Section 7 of the original Federal Reserve Act of 1913. The Fed's numerous advantages at a market, as a market player means it almost always turns a profit. So in practice, this is a large lump sum annual payment, usually mostly tax-free, by the way, to the roughly 2,900 banks in the Federal Reserve System. Within 17 years, banks automatically earn back the total stock purchase in nominal dollars, making any future dividends pure profit. Banks like J.P. Morgan Chase, around since the founding of the Federal Reserve, have reaped this benefit for 100 years. So yes, they do make money off of their membership of the Fed. But still, is this... So, okay, so the member banks have shares which equate to ownership, in a sense, I guess, of the Federal Reserve system? But what does that mean? What is the Federal Reserve system? Is this some thing, some entity that you buy shares in and that it's a business in that sense? Well, not really. What is the Fed? It is essentially a private cartel owned by the member banks themselves over the issuance of money uh, in the U.S. system and, and other other such things besides, but it is essentially that. It is a monopoly cartel or an oligopoly, oligopolical, <laughs> however you say that word, cartel over the issuance of money. Uh, so ownership is not quite the right word here. For example, one of the most important functions of the Federal Reserve System is the Federal Open Market Committee, which de de decides on the federal funds rate, which influences interest rates of the banks throughout the United States and ultimately knock-on effect throughout the world. So the Federal Open Market Committee, again, there's no ownership of a committee. It decides things. So I think what we have here is the question, which I think is a valid question that's gesturing towards something, but it's the, the wrong question, or perhaps it's simply being formulated in the wrong way. The real question here is not who owns the Federal Reserve. The question is who controls the Federal Reserve. And that is a slightly different question, which will give you a slightly different answer than if you're simply looking for some legal document that say, yes, Nathan Rothschild owns the Federal Reserve. Here's the, here's the deed. It's the wrong way to go about this task. We have to find out who controls the Federal Reserve and how they control it. Now, if this is starting to ring sort of bells for you. Oh, I kind of, this sounds familiar. Then yes, great, awesome. You were paying attention a decade ago when I was talking about this back in Questions for Corbett. 
how can you prove to yourself that countries' banks are privately owned and controlled? Exceptionally important question and one that we hear a lot, but I think the important point about this question is that I think it's an example of one of those questions where if they can get you to ask the the wrong question or the right question in the wrong way, they can give you the pat response that is going to be very definitive and look make you look very silly in front of other people. You know, oh, oh, why did you ask that? Whereas I think the question that we want to be asking is slightly different. So again, it always comes back to this. Who owns the Federal Reserve? It's, it's privately owned. It's these secret owners who own it. It's the Rothschilds. It's the Rockefellers. It's, you know, this and that. It's not quite that simple. So we can go to the Federal Reserve website, federalreserve.gov, and they have a standard pat answer to this on their FAQ, who owns the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve system fulfills its public mission as an independent entity within government. It is not owned by anyone and is not a private profit-making institution. And insofar as they get to define all those terms and put it in that way, they're technically correct. It's not a profit-making institution per se. They don't make a profit. Well, the profit that they make, they give back to the Treasury. And uh, and yes, there, there, there are shares that are issued through the Federal Reserve banks um, to the shareholders, which are the banks that make up the Federal Reserve System. So the private banks own shares in the Federal Reserve System through the Reserve Banks. And they get 6% dividends on that. So there is some type of profit-making going on for some of the entities involved here. But, uh, you know, it's not exactly the way people mean it when they say owned. And it's uh, it's not for profit. And all of these things that they get to say, look, all of you conspiracy theorists are wrong. So this is something I'm going to be talking about very specifically in my Federal Reserve documentary. How this works and what it really means. I think the real question is not who owns the Federal Reserve, it's who controls the Federal Reserve. And when we put it in those terms, it becomes much more apparent what's going on. The FOMC, the Federal Open Market Committee, which consists of presidents of the reserve banks, which again are drawn from the private private banks, which make up those, those reserve banks. So it's a system that's not, it doesn't operate in the way that I think it would be easy to understand. Oh, you know, Bank X or Person Y owns the Federal Reserve. It's that it's controlled through these mechanisms, which theoretically, yes, the Federal Reserve was put into place by Congress and can be repealed by an act of Congress. Not that it ever will be, or at least not in the current political climate, but they can at least say that, and they, there is some truth to that, and they get to put it in that context. So that that's the, the context that's really important. Uh, it's not who owns it, it's who controls it. And... Um, and on that note, again, um, there's there's often things that go around the web talking about there's only, you know, three central banks that aren't privately owned, and these are the three. That's like Iraq and Iran and North Korea, and so they invaded Iraq, or, or whatever it is. These lists go around, and I've seen different ones in different, uh, being propounded in different ways by different people. Uh, again, I don't think it's really about that. Uh, I, I, it's not... It's not about who owns the central banks per se. It's about how they're run and who directs and controls them. And uh, to get a better sense of, of that and the list of the countries that are on the globalist inside, I think we should go to the the bank, the central bank for central banks, identified by Carol Quigley as the apex of the pyramid back in Tragedy and Hope, the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, Switzerland, which very few people even know exists. And the few people that do don't understand what it is or how it works an exceptionally important organization that I am going to be doing more work on in the future because of its importance. But on their website, they have an about section and they list their organization, including the members who are the central banks or monetary authorities of, and it gives the list of all the central banks that participate in the Bank for International Settlements. And there you go. Those are the list of the 
bankster insider controlled central banks. And it doesn't mean that necessarily that they're owned by, outright uh, by various people. It means they're controlled. And in there, of course, you'll find Canada. Of course, you'll find Japan. Of course, you'll find the United States, the United Kingdom, the European Central Bank, Italy, Israel, uh, Indonesia, uh, Canada, Chile, I already said that, China, China, Russia. Oh, if, oh no, no, they're, they're against this w new world order. No, they're, they're a part of it. Uh, Germany, France, Australia, Austria. I mean, uh, that's the real list. So go take a look at that. And uh, again, there will be more to say about that because the BIS is such an important and such an understudied organization, even in the alt media. Ah, uh, yes. Now we get, I think, somewhere closer to the heart of the matter the Bank for International Settlements and associated institutions that, again, do not receive nearly enough attention, even among conspiracy researchers and realists, like the Financial Stability Board or LIBOR? No, no, no. Now it's SOFR and other such mechanisms and boards and committees and shadowy, not really institutions that are made up of various member banks and other things that control and write rules and capital regulations and Basel III and all of these sorts of things that ultimately control the international regulatory framework under which banks operate and how they interact with each other, etc., etc. This is where we start to get to that question of control, not simply ownership, but control of not just a bank, not just of the Federal Reserve System, but really, the ultimately, the international banking system, which is, I think, where the real, the real money is, as it were. Um, there's so much more to this. And so now we can, once we formulate it in this way, rather than simply about ownership of shares, it's more about control and uh, the control of, say, in the U.S. context, specifically the Federal Reserve System, uh, provides the players at the table, yes, with 6% dividends on their stock, but 6%, eh, that's nice. And that'll pay, pay for itself over time. And yeah, it's a nice little bit of earnings, but that is not exactly the ultimate grift, is it? No, 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 no. They're not out to try to make a profit on the actions of the Federal Reserve, money printing and whatever, the actual printing of the dollar bills and what have you. No, 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 no. It's about a much deeper game than that. And the game of control is often one of knowledge and foreknowledge of events that you get to ultimately dictate into existence. And that, to be fair, again, to someone like Mullins, is something that he knew about and documented and detailed, I think, with great accuracy. Now, I had a friend on the House Banking Currency Committee named Congressman Wright Patman. He spent most of his congressional career trying to find out two things. He wanted to find out who actually owned the stock of the Federal Reserve Banks, and he wanted to conduct an audit of the Federal Reserve System. He died without ever attaining either of those objectives. But after I was able to obtain the original organizational charts of the 12 Federal Reserve Banks in 1983, I was able, from those charts, to find out the principal stockholders of the major stockholders of the Federal Reserve Banks for the first time. Now there are a number of congressmen battling to audit the Federal Reserve System, to bring them up to date to find out what they've been doing. You also have Congressman Hamilton, who is trying to lift the veil of secrecy from the Federal Reserve uh, Board meetings. 
they have what they call the Federal Open Market Committee, which has absolute control over the daily price of money and the daily quantity of money throughout the United States. This means they can dictate whether the stock market shall go up or the stock market shall go down. Now, to have that information ahead of time is worth millions of dollars to anybody. anybody. So this is why they say they must operate in absolute secrecy. But these same governors of the Federal Reserve System are appointed by these, by these banks, and you can be pretty certain that the chief stockholders of those banks have some idea of which way things are going to go. They have some way of making their wishes known to the Board of Governors. When Paul Volcker was named chairman of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors in, uh, by President Jimmy Carter, the New York Times stated that uh, Volcker had been actually chosen by David Rockefeller and by Robert Russo. David Rockefeller was president of the Chase Manhattan Bank in New York, and Robert Russo was a partner of Brown Brothers Harriman. So you see, you have a very small crew running the affairs of the United States. And then, of course, when you had Alan Greenspan chosen as the next board of of chairman of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System, Alan Greenspan came to the Federal Reserve from J.P. Morgan Company. Now, I mentioned to you in November 1910, one of the Jekyll Island conspirators was Henry A. Davison, the right-hand man of J.P. Morgan at J.P. Morgan Company. Now here, 75 years later, you had a partner of J.P. Morgan Company chosen as the new chairman of Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System. And of course, Paul Volcker had come to Washington as the chairman of the Board of Governors from the position of president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, where, and he had originally worked for the Rockefeller Bank, Chase Manhattan Bank, and he had a long history of serving the big money interest in New York. It's a big club, and you ain't in it. I think is the nice nutshell summary of a presentation like that one, and all of the research that goes into this. Yes, there is a banking oligopoly, and there are connected players and certain family names that have uh, redounded for centuries at this point, including, of course, the Rothschilds and many other associated players who are all associated with each other in various ways. And you can trace the ownership of various banks and the people who sit on various boards and committees and how they interact with each other, the relationships they've had, who gets appointed to where, where etc. And you can follow the, the P under the shell but in the end, it's a shell game. That is essentially what this is. And the point is the game itself, which is ultimately a confidence game. It's a confidence trick that is being played on the public with the idea of the value of this money that is being conjured into existence in the form of debt. And I've had a lot to say on that over the years. I think there's a lot more to say. And ultimately, what is the real purpose and point of this? Well, again, as we can see, for example, in what Eustace Mullins is laying out there, if you sit on this Federal Open Market Committee, if you happen to be the chair of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, you have remarkable power over 
the economy. You can, for example, you can highly influence whether it is a time of boom or bust. You, whether the economy is expanding or contracting, which industries are thriving, which are going to go under. And not only do you get to have some degree of control over that, you also happen to know that in advance because it ultimately depends on your decisions that you are making. And do you think, is it possible that the people who sit in this oligopolistic system profit on the foreknowledge that they have? I, I, think, I think the answer may be yes, but maybe we don't have to speculate about that. Let's just look at one of the most important financial events of the past two decades, the global financial crisis of 2008-9 and the ensuing bankster bailout. The 2008 crisis and subsequent bailouts are merely the latest and most brazen examples of the fundamental conflicts of interest at the heart of America's privately owned central banking system. Beginning with the collapse of Lehman Brothers in September of that year, the Federal Reserve embarked on an unprecedented program of bailouts and special zero-interest lending facilities for the very banks that had caused the subprime meltdown in the first place. By the cartelization of the Federal Reserve structure, and thus not by accident, it was the very bank presidents who had overseen their bank's lending practices that ended up in the director positions of the Federal Reserve banks that voted on where to direct the trillions of dollars in bailout money. And unsurprisingly, they directed it toward their own banks. A stunning 2011 Government Accountability Office report examined $16 trillion of bailout facilities extended by the Fed in the wake of the crisis and exposed numerous examples of blatant conflicts of interest. Jeffrey Immelt, chief executive of General Electric, served as a director on the board of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York at the same time the Fed provided $16 billion in financing to General Electric. J.P. Morgan Chase chief executive Jamie Dimon, meanwhile, was also a member of the board of the New York Fed during the period that saw $391 billion in Fed emergency lending directed to his own bank. In all, Federal Reserve Board members were tied to $4 trillion in loans to their own banks. These funds were not simply used to keep these banks afloat, but actually to return these Fed-connected banks to a period of record profits in the same period that the average worker saw their real wages actually decrease and the economy on Main Street slow to a standstill. Now, as I certainly hope you're aware, that, of course, is a clip from Century of Enslavement, history of the Federal Reserve, where I documented the history of how the Federal Reserve came to be and what that institution is, what it represents, how it functions, how control over the economy that is vested in an entity like the Federal Reserve really functions and for whose benefit it functions. Spoiler alert, it's not your benefit that this functions for. It is the benefit of the banking oligopoly. Yes, not simply the Rothschilds, although obviously the Rothschilds, but many, many other banking institutions, families, and associated members besides. So I guess let's let's boil this down because everyone wants the 10-second version. Let, let's clip this out and make it into a TikTok video. Did the Rothschilds create the Fed? No. Um, I guess you could say it was A. Pyatt Andrew and Senator Nelson Aldrich and Frank Vanderlip and Henry P. Davidson and Benjamin Strong Jr. and Paul Warburg sitting there on Jekyll Island, hashing out the details of what would become the Federal Reserve. But even then, you have to add in people like uh, Carter Glass and Robert Latham Owen into that picture and how uh, that 
fits in or doesn't fit in with the received history of the Jekyll Island plan turning into the Federal Reserve Act. And then, of course, you have Wilson, but Wilson, of course, being puppeted by House and who is really who is House working for. And we could complicate this greatly. There are many, many, many people. Oh, sorry, we've already gone over the TikTok time limit in just attempting to answer that question. Did the Rothschilds create the Fed? No, many, many different players sat down at the table to create something like the Federal Reserve that functions in their interests. And there are many, many players who still, to this day, will maintain and defend that system because it is in their interests. And they will squabble with each other. And they will backstab each other to gain relative advantage in that system that they have created. Stop me if you've heard this before. It's a mafia. And the mafia will fight with each other, have wars, have turf wars, have battles between each other, assassinate each other, etc. But... If somebody steps in to try to come against the Mafia, you better believe they'll all band together and protect their fundamental racket. So this is the analogy because it is organized crime. That is that is what is happening and that is what the cartel power over the monetary system that the Federal Reserve is. It is organized crime and you better believe there are organized crime families like the Rothschilds and many others that have been floating around for generations and generations that continue to exert incredible influence over this process, but they're not the only ones. And this is not a trivial distinction. It is not a trivial distinction to say, well, well, actually, the Rothschilds don't own the Federal Reserve. No, it is a meaningful distinction because our answer, not just our answer to this question, but the way that we formulate this question, who owns the Federal Reserve, is expecting a sort of pat, easy to understand, easy to digest, no, no understanding needed, answer. It's the Rothschilds. Okay, so now we'll get rid of the Rothschilds and everyone will live in kumbaya harmony because that will be over. <laughs> that is not how this works. No, we have to understand this is a system of control that is predicated on a number of different interests coming together and agreeing to make some form of peace with each other in order to create a system that benefits them and their, their families at the expense of ours. And until we understand that in its greater complexity, we have no hope of fundamentally defeating or dismantling a system like this. Again, it's not a question of just resigning or rescinding the deed of ownership of the Federal Reserve. That's it, Rothschilds. We're crossing your name off and tearing up this ownership deed, and now it's ours. (laughs) That's not how this works. So we have to stop living in cartoon fantasy land and understand this system in all of its complexity and realize that, oh, this isn't just one little one little easily understandable, identifiable thing. This is part of a vast interlocking system and web of control that is predicated on many, many, many different parts of the oligopoly coming together to make it function. And so in order to really attack the Federal Reserve, we have to start attacking some of the fundamental premises upon which this entire system lies. Why do we need a central bank in the first place? What is the point of it? And then we can start interrogating the assumptions upon which that is based. Why do we need a government? From whence did it derive its authority and legitimacy? And how does it get the power to institute things like the Federal Reserve in the first place? Anyway, so it you have to go layers and layers deep, and it involves painstaking research and understanding and piecing things together and following dots and realizing that there are multiple players with their own agendas and uh, following a number of balls in the air. And I realize that is not going to be the answer that Joe Sixpack and Jane Soccer Mom want. And that's not the one they'll ever accept. It's going to come down to some version of it's, it's the Rothschilds, I tell you. And 
understandable. I, I, I get I get why the masses wait for that, and I get why the masses find sucker in the idea that there's the problem, and if we just take care of that, let's just storm the Bastille, and we'll have our glorious French Republic. Bada-bing, bada-boom, and everything will be all right after that. See, the aristocracy is gone. And now we get the reign of terror in Robespierre, and then we get Napoleon taking over, and then the reestablishment of a dyna dynastic aristocratic system, and then eventually a, some sort of version of a republic down the road. But don't worry, you're not going to have any say over that either. Ends up in Macron. <laughs> Yay, storm the Bastille, guys. That's the solution. Of course not. And again, okay, guys, get, get rid of the Rothschilds from the Federal Reserve System. Yay, we've won. <laughs> It's cartoon fantasy land stuff. We have to grow up. We have to look at more detailed information about the way this system works. And we have to start attacking it at its roots. Not thinking about the comic book fantasy of, oh, there we go. There's the, there's the bad guy. And we'll just get rid of that bad guy family and everything will be fine. That is not how this works. So if you want, and this is a big task, so I recognize that a lot of people will not want to take up this mantle. But if you want to start getting into the research, well, obviously, there are a number of resources that will be in the show notes linked up here to some of the things I've talked about and articles I've referenced, etc., that I would highly suggest you start delving into. And, of course, may I also humbly suggest Century of Enslavement, the History of the Federal Reserve. If you haven't seen it yet, this would be a high time. If you are interested in this subject, I suggest you check out my documentary on this subject. Um, now, it is, of course, as with everything I do, available 100% for free, free download of audio, free download of video, complete hyperlinked transcript of the entire documentary is available for free at corporatereport.com slash Federal Reserve. No sign up, no email newsletter gimmick or anything of the sort. It's just there and you can access it, make use of it. There are hundreds and hundreds of references in that documentary, all hyperlinked, so you can go and start exploring this information to your heart's content. You can also purchase a physical copy to DVD set from the New World Next Week store at newworldnextweek.com. And let me remind all Corbett Report members, paying members of the Corbett Report, that you get 25% off just for being a member. And that discount code for the New World Next Week store is at the bottom of every weekend newsletter. If you have no idea what that is or how to find it, just get in touch with me. I'll be happy to walk you through it. But on that note, there's a lot to explore here. And so I hope people will start to expand their, their horizons when it comes to this question of ownership of the central bank and start looking into the idea of control and how that really functions. A lot more to be said on this subject, but I trust that you'll have those questions and we can explore them in further editions of the Questions for Corbett series as those questions start to come in. But I think that'll do it for today's exploration. I think we've put a lot of meat on the table, so... Let's uh, let's chew, dig in and see what we can chew out of it. On that note, on that <laughs> highly elaborate analogy, I'm going to leave it there for today. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again in the near future. Money. It is the economic water in which we live our lives. Will you tell the American people to whom you lent $2.2 trillion of their dollars we spend our lives working for it, worrying about it, saving it, spending it, pinching it. So all that information is available uh, in our commercial paper program. And who got the money? But what is it? Where does it come from? How is it created? Who controls it? They tell us who they are. No. 
100 years ago, in 1913, the Fed was created. The banking cartel wrote their own rules and regulations. They're not agencies, Your Honor. They're persons under FOIA. There is no other agency of government which can overrule actions that we take. Century of Enslavement, the history of the Federal Reserve. Watch the documentary for free and access the transcript at CorbettReport.com slash Federal Reserve or support the filmmaker and purchase a DVD copy at NewWorldNextWeek.com. In the Fed! In the Fed!